All right, if you have a Bible, you can open it to uh, Matthew chapter 18. This morning, we are sort of starting a new series, sort of continuing an old series. We're spending this summer, it's kind of almost a good news summer is what it is, because we're spending this summer talking about some different things about God that are very important for us to really, really understand because they mean a lot for our lives. And we just finished talking for several weeks about just simply the goodness of God and what that means for us, how that changes everything for us. And we're going to be talking for the next few weeks about the graciousness of God. If you have a Bible, like I said, you can open it to Matthew 18, and we're going to read the first six verses, which is an encounter between Jesus and his disciples shortly after one of the times that he has told them um, exactly what's going to happen to him. Um, uh, that he is going to be persecuted, that he is going to die. Um, and they are dealing with that news now. So I'll put it up on the screen here. It's Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn to become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. We'll stop right there. So this passage, apart from being the one that strikes fear into the heart of all children's pastors and people that do children's ministry anywhere in the world, um, is a passage where Jesus is actually responding to his disciples, not just about how to care for little children, but he's answering their question of who is the greatest in the kingdom. Like I said before, Jesus has just told them yet again that he is going to go away. And that where he goes, they can't follow. And this is causing them a fair amount of stress. And so as they begin talking amongst themselves as disciples and asking that question, like, so what comes next then if Jesus wasn't around? What would it look like for us to try to actually, like, follow God without having Jesus right there to show us time and again exactly what it looks like? they come to the natural conclusion, well, probably one of us is going to have to lead. One of us is going to have to take the reins. And so the question then becomes to Jesus, um, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, this, uh, this isn't a question just because they got in some kind of a, a, a childish, juvenile sort of argument amongst each other and were like, come on, I'm better. No, you're better. No, you're better. No, in fact, they really are asking him, not even which one of them is the best so that he can pat him on the back and say, you're my favorite. Everybody knows it. You always were and you always will be. Uh, the word great, uh, which is from the Greek word mega, which is not a big surprise because that sounds like it would mean great, actually is referring, it's a word that's used not to refer to a thing in, in being powerful and like significant in a literal sense. It's the word that you use to describe something by its title or its position. So the idea is like uh, the CEO of the company is the greatest in the company. Um, the, the president is the greatest in the country. Um, the, the captain of a team is the greatest person on that team in that sense. It's, it's, a, it's a title, it's a role that's given to someone 
as a result of something about them. And, uh, and it's given them now a unique position of authority. So their question to Jesus is, which one of us, you know, who is, what does it look like for a person to truly be great in the kingdom of heaven? Because when you follow Jesus for as long as these guys have, it's a little harder to understand that than you would think, right? They go, well, okay, we know that these religious people who we used to think were the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, okay, we get it, Jesus. You have a major problem with them. We get it, okay? Uh, in fact, in the Greco-Roman world, what it meant to be the greatest, what it meant to be a true disciple was that you dedicated your life to learning the law and then to living out the law in a physical outward way. So it wasn't that confusing to know before this who's the greatest. You just go, who has learned the most about the law, who has dedicated the most of their life to learning it, and who has dedicated themselves to living it out, to actually fulfilling the law, to actually obeying the outward like law through their behavior. It was easy to see who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven before Jesus came until he came and kind of ruined everything by saying, uh, it's actually, there's a lot more to it than that. So these guys, they don't know. They go, just help us understand. If you don't pick one of us, then we're going to pick one when you're gone, if you do go away. So how do we know what it looks like for a person to actually be the best? I mean, is it the person with the most courageous, uh, you know, passion at sharing the good news of you and God and your kingdom? Is it the person who endures the, the greatest beatings? Is it the person who, who loves and serves the poor with the most sincerity? Is it the person that sacrifices the most? So the person with the longest beard, like who literally is the person? What does it look like for a person to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They ask this question to Jesus. His response to them is to go and to grab a child, to bring the child to them and to say this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus uses this word turn, that's not a good thing. You don't want Jesus to use the word turn with you because anytime that Jesus says, unless you turn, you need to turn, you must turn, this is the word that we use for repent. So he's not just saying, guys, listen, bring over a child, unless you do a better job of acting like this child, unless you keep going on the course that you're on, but you try a lot harder, unless you get further down the road that you're on and you become just like this child, no, he's saying to them, your very question, the way that you're asking me this says to me that you're headed the wrong way. There is a huge disconnect and it's clear in the question that they're even asking, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it is in that disconnect that Jesus kind of addresses them. They see greatness as coming as the result of human effort, as human endeavors. And Jesus is saying, this isn't true. Have you ever tried really, really hard to do the right thing, to actually make a situation better, only to find that you're doing the opposite and making it totally worse? I, was, um, I remember when Ellie and I were first married, we had a couple, um, we had some friends who were also newly married. They had some kids and um, as they were just dealing with like being newly married and having a family really young and, and just like trying to deal with all the stresses of life, they wanted to work on their marriage. And so they had this idea and the idea was to have a date night every Friday night. They didn't have money or family around that could watch their kids. So they were like, we'll just stay home on Friday nights. We'll have a date night together. And then what they decided to do after their kids went to bed on their date night was that they would 
they would get out this thing called the issue jar. And the issue jar was where they would put all their issues they had with each other. So as a way of throughout the week not picking on each other basically and pointing out all the things that bothered them about each other, they thought, oh, here's a great idea. Let's just, you know, the wife is like, if this bothers me about him, I'll write it down and I'll put it in the issue jar. And he's like, if this bothers me about her, I'll write it down and put it in the issue jar. And then every Friday night we'll sit down and the kids will be in bed and we'll spend some time and we'll each only get to pick out one issue issue from the issue jar. That way it won't get, you know, too out of hand. And then, uh, and then we can be a better couple. We can have a better marriage. Uh, the only problem is that the premise of the issue jar was a little bit off. Because if you believe that you can actually get to having a better marriage by just getting your spouse to work on a thing, and if they believe that the thing that's going to make the marriage better is to get you to work on a thing as well, you're not going to get to a better marriage very quickly. In fact, there's something, and believe it or not, as we talked to them after they were doing this for a while, they were like, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, I don't know, it's been good, but it's it just kind of, um, we're not really looking forward to Friday nights anymore. It just feels like it always turns into an argument. It always turns into a fight, right? The problem was that the guy had like nothing to put in the jar, and the wife had all this stuff to put in the jar, but it was because he was like totally just like didn't even want to think about it and she was always thinking about it so she's like don't worry I got plenty for both of us you know we'll just do two for me and he's like yeah that's fine and that didn't work out for very long uh like and they were like this isn't really helping us very much right like uh you've all been in that position where like you're so determined to try to make a thing better and do the right thing only to find out in the very way that you do it that your motives were not what they should have been all along their desire to have a better marriage was actually a desire to have a better spouse, not to have a better marriage. And the disciples' desire to know who's great in the kingdom wasn't for the sake of the kingdom. It was because they themselves wanted to know who it looked like was doing the best job. This is why Jesus' response to them is, first of all, you have to turn, repent from the way you're headed, and you've got to become like a little child, which is not what anyone wants to hear. The problem is in their question. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? There's something about that very question that seems off. Because you see, to be great in the kingdom of heaven is totally different than what we would think that it is. Jesus says to them, very simply, look at these children and be like them. That's how you're great. Well, here's the problem with that. Children aren't very good at doing impressive things. I mean, my kids are, but not everyone else's kids. Children aren't very good at doing impressive things. They're not very good at accomplishing uh, the job that they're often given. In fact, if you want to talk about a person who's obedient, that's something they think of with, you know, kingdom of God, somebody who is faithful, somebody who is mature, somebody who is uh, capable, somebody who's independent, somebody who's really smart, really intelligent, you wouldn't necessarily think of little children. The only thing that little children make you think of is dependence. These people who by nature are dependent on someone else. Jesus' response to the disciples is, if someone wants to be great in the kingdom, they must learn how to take and not give. 
There's something in Jesus' teaching here to the disciples that is absolutely radical. And it is the opposite of what most people think of when they think of religion, Christianity, or even following Jesus. According to his definition here, what God wants is takers. What God wants is people who depend. He doesn't want givers. He doesn't want doers. He doesn't want actors. He doesn't want people who are behaving the right way. He wants people who are taking from him. Who wants that? Who wants a bunch of takers? Who wants a bunch of of, uh, lazy, unmotivated, unproductive takers? That's the last thing that we need in this world. That's the last thing that we need in any family. That's the last thing we need in any church. That's the last thing anybody needs is people who are just going to take and not think about how they can contribute and what they can give. Jesus, this is crazy. The disciples must be thinking. The Bible shows us that what it means to be a good person. Well, first of all, that none of us are capable of that. The Bible gives us the law, and through the law makes it clear what it means to actually live in a way that's honoring to God. Live in the way that God intended us to live, the way that he created us to live. The moment that we're presented with the law, either one of two things happens. One, we become defeated by it. The law is the great accuser that reminds us only time and again of how we fail and fall short. Or we become puffed up and self-deluded and prideful, not self-aware enough to know that we're defeated by the law, Instead, believing the lie that we're one of the good ones that's actually fulfilling the law. And all the world needs is more people like us. Paul talks about this again and again in the epistles when he's explaining what it means to be, like we said last week, a new, like we said a few weeks ago, a new creation, what it means to be somebody who is, actually has their lives transformed by Jesus. And he talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2 in one of the best places where he describes what it means to experience God's grace. Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God after he talks about how lost in our sin we are, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul is incredibly clear. He doesn't mince words. We are dead in the law. And that's a self-aware person. A self-aware person, according to Paul, knows that they're dead in the law. Man, how frustrating is that? 
to think that the harder that you try to actually do the right thing, to actually do what God wants you to do, the more that you deal with the wreckage in this world around us and you go, how do I fix this? How do I fix this problem? How do I be a part of the solution? That the harder that you try to do what you read about in the Bible, the more you seem to be either self-aware enough to be, to be aware of the fact that you are you're dead. Like, you're just going to keep not being able to do it. Like, you literally learn if, again, I'm going to keep saying this, you're self-aware because it's very easy not to be. You will learn at a point, I am literally not the parent that my children need me to be. I am literally not the spouse that my husband or wife needs me to be. I am not the friend that my friends need. I am not the child that my parents need. I am not the pastor that the church needs. I am not the the member of the body that the body needs. I am not able to actually objectively be who I'm supposed to be. That's self-awareness. The other way of dealing with it is the pride, the arrogance of going, why can't everybody else just be like me? Because I'm killing it right now at this. What Paul says, because he's a pretty self-aware guy, is he says, you were dead. But God, being rich in mercy... Man, those two words, but God, they mean everything for us. Because before that comes condemnation and death, and it's exactly what we deserve. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. When we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about him doing something for us that we don't deserve and we never will. We're talking about something that can only be received, freely given by God, and in no way at all is it something that can be earned. If you are a recipient of God's grace, you have not earned God's grace. That's how it works. You're like, man, why do you, why, yeah, obviously, that's how it works. Move on. Let's talk about something that we don't already know for once. Paul seems to think that we really don't get this. He's not talking to a bunch of non-Christians, a bunch of people that have never heard the gospel. He's talking to people who have heard the gospel and are in the church. And he seems to think that people just aren't going to get this. For by grace, he says, you have been saved through faith. Let me sum it up. One phrase. Here we go. I'll make it short and simple for you. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's like, is that easy enough? Is that easy enough for us to wrap our minds around? Well, yeah, I mean, that's pretty incredible. That's profound, right? Because I, because I have faith. Okay, I, yeah, I had faith. I believed. I had faith. So, so there, right? I mean, that's something. I did something, right? I mean, God, like, you know, not everybody has the faith, right? So if I can, if I can, feel like I did anything, because I would sure like to feel like I did something to maybe be a person who deserved this, who earned this, then how about just the fact that I had the faith to trust in God, right? In some way, 
I've done something. Paul's like, nope, you're not going to do that. This is not your own doing. All right, Paul, we get it. No, I don't think you get it yet. This is not even your own doing. You didn't do something to earn this thing. It is through the richness of his mercy and his love and his grace that you have this thing. Man, we have this incredible thing called God's grace. We didn't do anything to deserve it or to earn it both before we receive it or after, all we're supposed to do is, what, just kind of take it and know that? It is, he says, the gift of God. It is the gift of God given to you freely. And what do you do with a gift but you receive it? You take it. There's one thing my kids are really good at doing. It is receiving gifts. They are very good at depending on us, especially when they try to not be depending on us. Why wouldn't this truly be good news? That's what we call it. That's what we talk about it. The word gospel means good news. It's not saying good data. It's not saying good, you know, scientific research and information and philosophical arguments. No, it's news about something that has happened. This is good news, right? Yes, that's great news. And yet, I wrote three sermons this week. Separate sermons. And I'm going to give them all together. I'm just kidding. I wrote three sermons because... I kept going back to the same question, which is, if God's grace is so big, why does it seem so hard for us to truly, really appreciate it? Why does the good news of the gospel, when we're honest, not always feel like good news? We have to be reminded that it's good news. We have to be made to almost feel guilty, like we don't see the goodness of it all the time. Or maybe, yeah, it was good news when I realized I was dead in sin, but I haven't been for a long time, and so let's talk about something else, or let's figure out how in the world all these other people that are driving me crazy, walking around in blindness, living in sin, can have the good gift of God so that they can stop messing up the world that I'm trying to live in. If God has this free gift of grace that's given to us and it is good news, then why doesn't it always feel that way? And the reason it doesn't always feel that way is because of the context. News only relates to us when it's, well, when it relates to us. News only matters to us when it's about us when it affects us, when it affects our world, when it affects our life in some way. If you were to look at what you, if you were to, uh, if you were to get online and start looking at the news, geographically even, you would care less about the news of the things that are further away, and the closer they get, you would care more. Have you seen those ads, of course you have, that pop up now, and they say things like about Oregon City, as though like the, as though like somehow the, like, most dangerous, I keep having this thing pop up on my computer, the most dangerous bridge 
in America is in Oregon. And I'm like, I don't think this is even a real thing. I think they literally just have an algorithm that takes data and then puts in the name of where you live so that you'll go, oh, oh, oh gosh, oh, am I on the bridge right now? I better make sure I'm not. This is terrifying, right? Because news of things that are not immediately relating to us in our context don't matter nearly as much. The other day, no, not the other day, sorry, several years ago, um, this is what happens when you get old, guys, it all just blurs together, you know, <laughs> Mark laughs. Several years ago, I was a youth pastor at, at my previous church, and um, I know it's hard to imagine, um, and I was, uh, we were getting ready to take family photos, our family was, um, and Ellie sent me out to buy a new shirt, and so I went to buy a new shirt, and I picked out a very nice flannel plaid shirt, because that's what youth pastors wore at the time, all we ever were allowed to wear was plaid, and I, uh, I branched out, I went beyond Target, which is a big deal for a youth pastor at the time as well, and I went, and I was, I put on this nice flannel shirt, and I took a picture of myself, I was in the dressing room, and I sent it to Ellie, and I was like, do you like this shirt? But it didn't go to Ellie. It went to this lady named Christina, who's a very nice lady. Uh, Christina was an admin at our church. She was also a mother of a kid in our youth group. She was also a wife of an elder on our elder board. And um, Christina randomly at three o'clock in the afternoon got a picture of me trying on a shirt in a dressing room. And the question, do you like this shirt? And she responded with, uh, yeah, I think it looks great. And I was like, wow, that could have been a lot worse because I was shirt shopping, right? Um, and uh, and ha- we, everyone here probably has, well, okay, I'll just say this. If you're married and you text, you've probably been in a situation where you've texted something you thought was going to your spouse and it went to someone else. And the appropriate response to that every time on both ends is, wow, that could have been a lot worse, right? Because like you could have been saying something mean, it could have been way worse, whatever it is. But we've been there and done that. In fact, at this point, we're texting so much that we're texting out so many things all day, all the time, that we all know what it's like to get a text from somebody and just be like, that was not for me, right? Uh, I don't think that was for me. Who was that for, right? And, uh, and oh, man, how did I get this messed up, right? Uh, I consider that, that situation with Christine, by the way, like Christina, like the closest thing to near-death experience I've ever experienced because it was pretty terrifying for me. And it was like, oh, no, this is not good. Uh, it turned out okay, uh, the shirt did look good, um, the pictures turned out well, and Christina um, didn't tell anyone that I was shirt shopping in the middle of my work day. Um, but imagine for a second that you take the most important text message, that, just think, um, you probably won't be able to come up with this, but, and especially a bunch of people were at camp this last week, they didn't have reception, but let's just say the most important text that you sent in this last week whether that, whatever that text would have been, what the most important one that you sent, maybe it was a text where you finally won an argument with somebody, and, you know, because you said something and then threw your phone into a lake, because that's the only way to win an argument, really, uh, with text. Uh, maybe it's because you said, I love you to your spouse, and what that really means is like, I'm sorry, and I was wrong, but um, I'm just, let's stop being upset at each other about this anymore. Maybe it was you saying to a person, 
God loves you and I'm praying for you because you know they're going through something hard in that exact moment at that exact day and because they got it when they did and from you, that really was a way for you to say to them like this is like for them to know like wow, I'm, God really does see me and know me and care about me in this way. It might have just been that you're setting up a meeting with somebody. You're trying to get to an appointment that you haven't gotten to in a long time. Whatever it is, you're getting something done and that text, you might have been in a plane that got delayed by four hours and that text that you sent that said my plane is delayed by four hours is a pretty important text for the person picking you up from the airport. Whatever that text is, think of that text in your mind. Now pretend that all those texts that all of us have is our most important ones just got mixed up together in a bowl as if that's how it works. It's not, but they got mixed up together in the cloud. I think that's what the cloud is. I don't know. And they went out to everybody different. And you get that text and you go, I don't think this text was for me, right? You can send the most important piece of information, the most important piece of news But if it doesn't relate to the person, if it's not their news, if it doesn't apply to their context, if it's not for them, then it doesn't mean anything to them. Why on earth would the good gift of God's grace ever not feel like amazing, incredible good news to us? Such good news that it overpowers our desire to be better people on our own. That it causes us to wake up in the morning and go, you know what I want to do today? I want to receive from God. I want to be someone who receives God's grace today. Not, what am I going to do for God today? How am I going to matter today? I think that Paul knows what it is that makes it hard for us to do this. And it's why he says here, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I mean, if we are like children who are receiving and taking from God, if we are defined more by what we receive from him and not by what we do for him and how we are, how we act, how we live, what we prove, then what can we boast about? What can I be proud of in myself? How can I feel like I matter? You can feel like you matter because of the reason why God has shown you his grace. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Why are we to be children? Because we have a father who loves us. Why is it better to receive his grace than to try to accomplish things on our own? Because we have a father who loves us. Why in the world is it better to live in what he's done and not what we try to do on our own? Because he is such a big deal. And we are his worksmanship. Why does God do this? Why on earth would he want takers and not givers? Why on earth would he send his own son to die so that we can receive a gift from him freely in this world that we've screwed up with our sin? Because... 
it brings him glory. If you want to know the answer to the question of why, when you're reading the Bible, when you're living your life, the answer to the question is always some form or another of because it brings God glory. He's a big deal. God does what he does because it glorifies him. It glorifies him that it's his love that makes it work, that it's his mercy that makes it work, that it's his grace that makes it work. It glorifies him that when people look at us in our lives, they don't see people who are doing a great job in their own effort, but they see people who are recipients of something that is incredibly good and incredibly transformative and completely different from anything the world has to offer. That brings him glory. And you go, well, that sounds kind of selfish. The God of the universe is concerned with his own glory? What would you rather he be concerned with? Your glory? My glory? That would be a very small God indeed. A God who does what he does because I showed him on a pretty good day that I'm pretty impressive. He's so impressed with me, in fact, that he's like, you know what? You get life. You get to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. How small would that God be? No, our God knows what truly the glory belongs to and who it belongs to, and it's him. The question that we ask ourselves is, what have I received from God today? Before we ask the question, what am I doing for God? What can I give to God? What can I prove to God today? When we think about God's grace, the truth is that we are to be a people who are completely and totally shaped by, transformed by, and living out God's grace. People should look at the church and see grace, not the law. They should look at the church and they should see, they should look at you and me and our lives and our families and they should see grace lived out. A people who receive, a people who are forgiven, because the result of this, right, if you are given a gift that is greater than anything else that you could possibly imagine, what is the result? You are grateful. And gratefulness is how we live as a result of it. Do I feel grateful to God today? Do I feel overwhelmed with gratefulness for Him? If not, then have I experienced His grace truly? Have I shown grace to others? If not, have I experienced grace from God? Do I see my job as a, as a person living in Jesus' name? Do I see that job as I go out and I show God's grace? I share God's grace. Or do I see my job as I go out and I am the law? I embody the law. I hold people to the law. I hold myself to the law. When people look at my family, do they say, this is a place of grace? Or do they say, this is a place of real, solid obedience? Amen. You see, it's so easy for us to still ask the question the disciples asked. I mean, how hard is it 
if you are, let's just, let's just, I'll just pick on people who have lived the longest. If you are in your 60s, your 70s, your 80s, how hard is it to hear from Jesus that you are supposed to be like a child? I mean, is that really what we want to hear if we've been living what we feel like is a life of faith? No. I want to know that, uh, that, you know, you're pretty impressed at this point maybe. Now, we all want this. Anyone who follows Jesus struggles with this. But it's one of the crazy things about following Jesus for a long time, where the longer you do it, it, it can continue to get more challenging because it's easy to believe that what God really wants is for the world to look at us and go, look at that person who is great, who has done great things, who is great, rather than look at that person who draws all of their life and everything of who they are from God and from his grace, who is as dependent as a child. There's two ways that we respond to the law. We either feel defeated by it or we pridefully try to become self, try to live out a self-righteousness, thinking that we are somehow doing it, living it out, unaware of what it's really doing in our lives and what it's really doing to others. Paul knows that if we are at all self-aware, that we recognize that we're dead to the law, that we're dead in sin, and that God's grace is the best news that we can ever have. After spending all week struggling with what feels like the immense task of just talking about something as simple as God's grace, I just started worshiping in the first service before and was overwhelmed with emotion by just having an opportunity to sing words and to experience God's grace in my own life. We can talk about it. I can talk about it. You can listen. You can read about it in God's word. But there's also nothing like just spending time reflecting upon, singing about, worshiping to God, and receiving his grace. And that's what we do now. Would you guys pray with me? Father, The fact that you are a gracious God is something that is absolutely mind-blowing and incredible in, in so many different ways. And yet somehow many of us find it not to be good news, but to kind of be bad news. We want to live in a world where we were able to do enough, where we were able to prove to you our goodness and our worth. But God... There is something far greater than us proving our goodness and our worth. It's us experiencing your grace and your love and having to realize that that means that you are a father who loves us and considers us your workmanship, Lord. It doesn't mean that we need to feel bad about ourselves and beat ourselves up and hate ourselves and loathe ourselves. It just means that we need to recognize that we're children who receive from you, God. It is very, very hard as an adult to be told to be like a child. 
The only way that we can truly live as children of yours is when we feel safe in your arms. When we feel that your grace and your love is more important than the opinions of others, than what we have to prove and what we do. Would you overwhelm us with such a sense of your love for us and your grace that it makes all the other things that we try to prove in our efforts just sort of fade away into nothing, God? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.